I'd always wanted a high quality rubber chicken. And by the way, there are very different kinds of rubber chicken. You get the ones that dogs chew, the squeaky ones, which are great. I love them and they're quite cheap. And then you get the more advanced ones like this, which you can, can't see, but I'm describing it. It looks much more like a real chicken. It's got kind of, you know, feather marks on it and so on. And it's painted quite realistically. This is a juggling chicken. And these are used by clowns and jugglers. And they're much more difficult to find and they're much more expensive. And it was one of these. So it was a precious thing. It was a real professional level rubber chicken. Hi, I'm Adam from Workplay Experience and the Global Service Jam, and you're listening to Gut Talks, double G, U, double T. Hi, everyone. Welcome to season one of Gut Talks, double G, U, double T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist, and venture builder, running two ventures, GUT, Double G, U, Double T, and Other Dots Foundation. I decided to launch GUT Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board, and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me. Maria at God.com, W-G-U-W-T, or check the links in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Adam Lawrence, a customer experience consultant, facilitator, comedian, and actor with a background in psychology and theater. He's also an author and co-initiator of the Global Service Jam, the Global Sustainability Jam, and the Global Gov Jam. I've seen Adam at service design conferences, but he met him at the backstage sessions of the co-creation school that he co-hosts twice a month with different people interested in learning, sharing, having fun, really experimenting, people interested in the design and co-creation space. And the backstage, there's nothing about selling or self-promotion and no recordings, so I had to find an alternative way to invite Adam on Gut Talks. So today we'll be talking about work, play, and experiences, which is the name of Adam's company, Work, Play, Experiences. But also we're going to talk about definitions, languages, and some statements. So I'm really, really eager to jump into the conversation. Adam, thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really good. And it's the first spring weather here in Germany where I live. Or the first. We have some uh, some strange winter weather. It's always scary when it gets warm in the winter. But now it feels like it's the spring that should be happening. It's lovely. And my intro was really brief about you. So I know that I've just asked you that because I've been seeing you on camera, seeing your heart behind you and so on. But I just uh, realized you're a musician. So Well, I'm, I'm a singer. I'm not a musician. So real musicians would, would, not, would laugh at that idea that singers are musicians. So I, I don't even read music very well. But um, I do work professionally in theater and I have 20, 25 years or so. And... I do lots of sort of musicals, so I'm an actor, singer, if you like, and I have instruments around so I can sort of accompany myself, work out things on the keyboard, or I can kind of play campfire guitar, this kind of level. And I love instruments. I think they're beautiful things. So I, I have a few in my house also that I can't play because one day I will learn them. I won't, but I tell myself I will. Yeah, I can relate to that one. I used to collect musical instruments as well. So I also think they're beautiful and nice to have in an office or anywhere. So since you got started, who's Adam? 
Adam is a guy. I grew up in the UK, as my accent probably gives away. I've lived in Germany most of my life. I'm a German citizen now. I work with mostly with my colleague Marcus Hormes um, here in Germany and worldwide. And we're usually helping large organizations change the way they approach problem solving or value creation. Often that's linked to something like customer experience or user experience, but it doesn't have to be. It can be all kinds of innovation or change challenges that they come come to and they come along and say can you help us with this and then we go in and we try to help them do stuff not do stuff for them we're not an agency who takes it out of your hands and gives it back to you finished we don't believe in that model instead of that we'll come in and we will work beside you with the idea that when we're gone you don't need us for the same problem again. You might need us for something different, for a different kind of challenge, but you should have enough tools and mindsets to face the same things successfully yourself next time. So you work with them. You kind yeah. of enable them. And since your background is in psychology and theater and you use that in your work, how did you transition into what you're doing today? So I've kind of played both sides of this for a long time. My degree many, many years ago when the rocks were still soft, my degree was in psychology and I actually focused on animal psychology. So that was quite interesting, evolutionary psychology. But then I switched into quite big business. I work for a very large automotive company, helping with the creation of new motorcycles. I'm not an engineer, but I was helping with the concept work and gathering the needs of the different stakeholders in that, like dealerships and local networks and so on. And so I had this sort of bit, this large industry context. And then I made what I thought was a switch into theater when I moved to Germany in my early 20s and worked for a long time running theater festivals or music festivals, acting myself, running small theaters and so on. And at the same time, I was always really bugged about the experiences that I got from organizations, whether it was governments or my employers sometimes or as a customer. And my friend Marcus and I, who's also my colleague now, we used to sort of riff about these things and complain about them. And we would say, it would be so easy if they would just do this. It would be so easy if they would just do that. So we were sort of opening our mouths a lot about customer experience and a friend of ours who worked for a large organization said, okay, come and put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. We need some workshops. I'm going to ask you to talk to my colleagues and if they think you're any good, we'll employ you for this. And literally a couple of days before this first customer experience workshop, Marcus said to me, what are we going to do? And I said, well, we rehearse because that's how I think as an actor, I think with my body. So if you ask me to produce an idea, I'll get up and try something. So we got these wonderful people from this large organization in a room and we said, okay, what are the struggles that you face every day? And let's simulate them here. Let's try something different, which is what you do in rehearsal. You try 50 ways of doing something and you iterate every two or three minutes. And that was the beginning, if you like, of a journey into more embodied, more physical, more human ways of problem solving. And we discovered an amazing way of thinking called service design or design thinking. We found a bunch of practitioners around that who are really acknowledging the fact that yes, we have business problems and we have technical problems, but we are humans approaching them. So let's try and find tools which allow us to be human and which use the strengths we have as little naked monkeys yeah, to address and solve problems and to collaborate together. I like the way you presented that and I like the journey because I didn't know about that. And you touched on many things here, actually. So you're talking about simulation, mm. but often we as people, but mainly organizations, go by assumptions 
Yeah. And I just follow that. How are you able to bridge this gap and help change this mindset through play? Sure. We have the word play in our company title, work, play, experience. That actually was the title of my blog, first of all, and it became the company title. While I was looking at theatricality in commerce and play has that double meaning of play a game, but also the play, which is the script and the production of a script, which happens in theatre. So there's lots of parallels, of course, there between organisational work and what happens in the theatre. So... If assumptions are really, really interesting because they're very deeply tied to how we understand the world as creatures, we're surrounded by enormous complexity and to navigate that we make assumptions. We have to, otherwise we'd be paralyzed by that. The trouble is they're often quite close to our beliefs. Yeah, so what we believe to be true, they, assumptions become beliefs very quickly. And then they get very, very entrenched in everything we do. We start to see the world through this lens which says, world works like this and that makes it very difficult to change things and whenever we're trying to create something new we are trying to change at least ourselves or the world around us and doing that based on assumptions is quite risky but you might be right sometimes we're right sometimes our clients are absolutely right about what the problem is often they're not so if you're going at that from a sort of a human standpoint then there are a couple of things that you can do. The first one is to say, okay, if that's our assumption, what does it mean? Let's try it right away. You know, to, to start prototyping, to start piloting, to start doing something, simulating something very, very early and discovering, ah, it doesn't work the way I thought it did. Or it does, great, tick it off, yeah? The other one, which often happens right after that, is that you say, okay, why didn't it work the way I thought it did? Hmm, maybe I don't understand enough yet. And then you use other aspects of your humanity to be curious, to listen, to find out, to get out of the building and to explore. And that will often challenge your assumptions. And so what you're trying to do is get people into a position of curiosity and a little bit of positive humility where we say, I don't know yet, but I think I will. And try and collaborate to make things, to make new things. I like the way you're putting it because it's, I mean, it's obviously something I can relate to. But as designers, we often based many of our decisions on assumptions too, mm. just to try, right? Sure. Test, try, explore, iterate, yeah. and again, and again, and again. Not everyone has this mindset. So there's an educational process here mm. to be done. But what's your view on assumptions, the iterative process as a whole, and gut feelings in general? Gut feelings. Gut feelings are super useful because they power us. Yeah, they, they will move us to do things before we even think about it. And that can be life-saving. Back in the day when I was a teenager, a university student, I earned my living as a bouncer in a very, very rough pub, in a, in a Hells Angels pub in a city called Reading, just outside London. And in that situation you learn to trust your gut. You know, you learn to feel there's something weird in this part of the room. I should look around here or I should avoid this part of the room sometimes. Yeah? And we have that as species. We've developed that, like many other species have, that feeling of putting things together and without being able to explicitly say why, feeling there's something here. And often our reaction is also hardwired to that. I run or I fight or I whatever. Yeah? That is powerful. That is useful. The problem is that, as Kahneman would say, this is a really good way of dealing with known problems and known situations. When we get into unknown situations, that is not the right strategy because we're applying a learned response, 
not to the original stimulus, but to one which looks a bit similar to it. And that can get you into trouble. So, for example, I've done a lot of combat sport in my life as well. And in the combat sport that I do now, we wear helmets. You know, we, we protect our faces with metal helmets. And it means that in my previous combat sport, if something came very close to my head, I would flinch away from it because I, mean, I, was, I was about to be hit. But in my combat sport I play now, that's okay. Yeah? And I had to unlearn that response because it was actually blocking me from doing certain things in that sport because I was protecting my head too much. I didn't need to. I think that's a good shout out to Anna Kira. She goes into neuroscience and so on. So Absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of this also is classic sort of conditioning. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Pavlov and Skinner and people like this who, who talked about conditioning back in the day and simply learned responses. And one of the things that interests me, we spoke about play earlier, is mindsets. Yeah, and there are lots of different definitions of what a mindset is. But when I was a psychologist, I would define a mindset as a bundle of stimulus responses. Yeah, so I have a literally a set here of if this happens, then I do that. If this happens, then I do that. And I have an alternative set here and an alternative set here. So the same stimulus gives a different response if I'm in a different mindset. Yeah. So the example I often say is imagine that you and I are you know, board members in an organization with in the boardroom with the big mahogany table and the tall black leather chairs and you're wearing a super sharp suit and I'm wearing a super sharp suit. Yeah? And if you say to me, well, Adam, that wasn't the best idea I've heard this year. In a board meeting context, that is fighting talk. But we can be the same two people, can be down the pub or sitting in the cafe afterwards. I think the pub's a great example in, in many cultures, yeah? And you can say to me there, oh, Adam, you're an idiot sometimes. And that's fine because of the different contexts that we're in. And it seems that a lot of that context is cued by physical environments. It's the mahogany table and the black chairs, or it's the jukebox in the corner and the smell of beer that switch us between these mindsets, which is why it's great when you get out of the house and go running or something like this. It helps you put a different sort of set of responses into your head. I find that super interesting, and we're trying to be playful in organizations. So I'm fairly well known, I guess, for rubber chickens. You beat yeah. me on that one. <laughs> and one of, one of the reasons why I think rubber chickens are interesting is because what happens when you're in that boardroom with the mahogany table and there's a rubber chicken on it? Which mindset is now appropriate? And maybe we can try to use both of those mindsets. We can use the playful one and the objective business mindset as well. Yeah, it's like you're trying to bring people together to create this common ground in a certain way. And you touched on physical space mm. or um, the physical aspect of things. And, yes. and I want to go back into safe spaces and safe environments that you discussed. But before that, I just want to pick your brain a little bit on some definitions just to set the scene mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for the audience. Okay. Sure. Now, let's do that kind of like a, uh, how do you call it, a speed question answer Okay. kind of thing that everyone can get. Okay. But um, before we go into this, I'd just like to yeah. say one thing. While definitions are very useful, I see them as quite limited because they rely on words. And as you said, I believe a lot in physicality. And there are some things that you cannot express in words. There are very, very important implicit things in our experience as organisms which don't fit into words. So I have a go with the definitions, yeah. but I always see them as a limited answer to anything. I get your point on that one. Absolutely. 
However, the only thing is to know what we're talking about. Sure, so absolutely. let's say it's not a definition, it's just setting the scene sure. um, from your own perspective, if that makes more sense. Because yeah, I know if we say service design, you're going to get a thousand of different definitions. You're not going to get one. And then we're going to get into that one. But before that, what's your view on the buzzword around design, design thinking, innovation, service innovation. I mean, I can't count, but also the most important one is post-it notes, because I don't know if you know, you're going to kill me on that one. But during this pandemic, I did many things. And one of the things is this podcast. And I created a 25 minutes course on post-it notes, not because, just because they're just a tool. If you use post-it notes, you're not going to achieve anything if you don't know how you're using them. So it's the whole definition, just because I would get comments, oh, that's really cool. That's awesome. What are you doing here? But it's, it's literally a tool. So that was the whole point behind it. But what's your view on how things are happening in the ecosystem in general, in terms of buzzwords? Where do you see yourself? How do you fit into that? I'm very happy to try to use the language which the people I'm talking to use. Now, this has changed a bit over the last decade, I would say. Back in around 2010 and so on, when I would hang out at conferences, there's always a time at a conference where sort of a few sort of of the, let's say, old guard or the agency heads or whatever sort of end up clustered together on, on a staircase bitching about things. And back in the day, we were talking about how do we get people to understand what we do? And I remember a a very specific conference in Cologne about, yeah, about six, seven years ago where that changed to where do we find enough staff? So that was a good sign that things were changing, at least in our context in Western Europe. And so my relationship to the buzzwords around this is a bit ambivalent. I don't need to use them. And in fact, if you go to my company's webpage, you'll have to look quite hard to find the word design. And I don't think you'll find the word service design anywhere unless it's in some sublink or article that we've written. On the other hand, I co-wrote a book called This is Service Design Doing. So I do use that, that phrase. I struggle with it. I don't like it very much. But what has happened is that in the last yeah, few years, people have sort of heard about this thing and they want some. They don't know what it is, but they want some. You know, they read Harvard Business Review stuff about it. They read the McKinsey reports and so on. It's become very mainstream. They see the U.S. military is using this, et cetera, et cetera. And they say, okay, I want some of that. Now, the problem with the post-its is that when people do these kind of projects, if you think about the activities which might be part of, let's say, a service design or design thinking project, there's lots of research where you're out of the building or you're making phone calls and stuff like this. There's lots of prototyping where you're out of the building, ideally, or at least locked in a lab and so on. And there's lots of implementation, which look, which is meetings, 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 meetings. And in between that, there's a few workshops. We move lots of post-its around. But they're the things that the colleagues see because they happen in the building. They look through a glass door and they see post-its. So they think service design or design thinking happens on post-its and then the worst thing is the bosses go to some conference and do a 48 minute workshop on this is design thinking in 48 minutes which is a piece of innovation theater of post-iting ideas which you never never validate or never try everyone loves them at the end because they're my ideas of course i freaking love them i had them and they think that design thinking is moving post-its around and Design thinking is no more moving post-its around than building a house is moving nails around. Yes, they are a tool that you use, and you can use nails in very smart ways that, <laughs> that a beginner can't do, but it's not enough just to understand how nails work to build a building. There's much more to it than that, and it's the same with our post-its. Ad break. 
No, not an ad. But as you may have noticed, this show has no sponsors. But you can still support Gut Talks by leaving five stars or a comment on your podcast player. And like, share, and follow the social media channels of Gut. W-G-U-T-T. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get going. Absolutely. So you touched on service design, design thinking, and you use service design thinking. <laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of a shortcut. I don't know if you've spoken to uh, Mark Stickdorn or Jakob Schneider about this. Both friends of mine, the co-authors of the This is Service Design Doing book, which was a sequel to their book, the very important book, This is Service Design Thinking. And the way they tell it is they were part of the sort of debate, you know, do we call this service design? Do we call it design thinking? And I know those there are people who find those very different things, and there are some virtue to that. I and they think that there's much more in common than there is different between these things. So they were thinking, what do we write on the book? Do we write service design or do we write design thinking? And they thought, well, let's make a sort of graphical joke and put the th things overlapping and write service design thinking kind of as a, a way out of that problem or, or as a joke on it. And then suddenly that becomes a thing. <laughs> you know, and so, it's doing now, so it works. Well, now it's doing, yeah. But, you know, you see service design thinking. My university where I teach in Madrid, the IE Business School, they describe me as a service design thinking assistant professor. Or, you know, you see people who offer service design thinking, hashtag service design thinking and so on. And it was initially a joke, which has now taken on kind of a life of its own. I call it whatever people call it. I often just call it yeah. change. I get what you mean. I mean, when I, a long time ago, I graduated in product design and then I think it was, I was really a fresh grad and I went to a job fair or something like that. And, and I was giving my CVs, right? And someone was like, oh, you're a graphic designer. No, I'm a product designer. Yeah, you're a graphic designer. Like, uh, no, um, yes, I'm a graphic designer. That's my CV. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's because I was like, I'm yeah. done. Yeah. That, that was like the last person, I think, in the circle where I had to explain all the time. And at the end, you're, you're like going back to language. Let's just put it in words they understand mm. so we can get the conversation started. Otherwise, exactly. it just blocks it. And I think clean language is very important here. You know, it's one is if we do use words to know what we mean by them. And the other one is if we hear somebody else using words, not to assume they mean the same thing that we mean. You know, so to ask when you say X, what do you mean? What does that look like? This can be a very important thing to do. When it comes down to this, I really love a thing which Maurizio Mannheis says, professor of service design at SCAD, and one of the smartest people I ever met. And using much more fancy words than I can, he talks about we should probably spend less time trying to define what service design is and spend more time exposing people to it. So they try it and they feel it and then they get it. Even if they can't define it themselves, at that point they understand it. So it's about this difference between, if you like, what can fit into words and what you have to experience, which I find very interesting. Yeah, this relates two things here. So in the workshops you run, and I'm not putting it plug, but it's kind of, why not, you know? <laughs> you do actually use lots of play, and now you're exploring things behind the screens that allow people to communicate and make sure that they are talking and they're understanding what they're talking about. Mm. And this is one of the things about facilitation, and we're going to get to that after, but I just want to mention it because it fits into this um, context. But <laughs> that's going to be, I'm not going to say provocative one, but What's a jam? What's a sprint? And what's a hack for you? <laughs> because I know as well that there's a buzz around sprints too. Yeah, I personally see them. They're just, yeah. they fit in the process. But a sprint alone will not solve anything it, on its own. 
this is really again it's a it's a, a definition thing we have the word sprint as it's used for example in agile or in scrum to mean a work section yeah a a, a rhythm of your working with a sprint and a, and a retrospective and sprint and retrospective that's one type of sprint what we often see is now also is the design sprint you know popularized by by google people like aj and smart and so on who are doing really good work with that stuff then you see people who see that as some kind of panacea some kind of a healing for everything you can do everything in a sprint and you can't i mean i'm a great lover of accelerated formats the jam is an example of that and there are wonderful things you can do in 48 hours or in a week or in two weeks or in four hours whatever it is but there's a huge amount of stuff that you can't do in that time so we usually call it jams because we try to examine the problem as much as the solution whereas sprints tend to start by validating a problem and then going into solution space. That's just a tendency. People use the words differently. And we use them a lot, but we don't use them to try and solve a whole problem, unless it's a very small, very localized problem. We use them to get attention for a way of working or for a particular change that's happening. We use them to do a very quick 360, like an early iteration in a project which mobilizes lots of people and brings the right people into the room. So you can map out, aha, it could be over here, it could be over there, those people should be involved, these people should be involved. You can find that out practically. Uh, we use them for training, you know, to actually learn techniques and so on. And I think that's what sprints are useful for. I mean, I've produced some graphics around this where I have like a picture of a whole bunch of fruit on one side or vegetables and just a chili bean on the other side. And the chili bean is labeled design sprint and all the fruit and veg is labeled design. Or the flash is labeled design sprint and all the superheroes are labeled design. So what I often say is don't do your design in sprints, do sprints in your design. Yeah. Or don't uh. do your innovation in sprints, do sprints in your innovation. And that's a fantastic time to use them because of that focus of resources, that luxury of not thinking about something else all day. Yeah. yeah that is so valuable. And also because it lets you activate so many people who then become, if you like, fans or allies of your project. And that is so useful going forward. Yeah, I like that. Actually, each project is different. So for me as well, the sprint fits into the process. Absolutely. And it's a great way to achieve things and deliver and see, because people see the results really quickly. Like, wow, in a week I did that. But it's not alone. Like, it's not a standalone No, process. unless it's a very, very limited project. Yeah, project, yeah. Um, problem or it's or you do it with the intent of not using the results so for example mm -hmm. i've done jams in a context of i can't mention the client but a large organization had a big change of leadership in one of its main sectors one of its main departments if you like and hundreds of people work in that department and the future was going to look different and so we ran with them a jam with 700, I think it's five, six, 700 participants in one location. It was an amazing thing with 50 facilitators and so on. And we said, okay, our world is changing because of what's happening outside and now inside the organization. Let's imagine we can reach forward 10 years or nine years into the future and bring back something. We bring back a way of working. We bring back an artifact from the future, the minutes of a meeting, whatever it is. Yeah, let's build that now. And that was a smart choice they made to set it sort of nine years in the future because nobody expects to build what comes out of that sprint. It was just a thought experiment to say, ah, this is how the world works now. We're trying to actually do something and we're knocking into new barriers that weren't there last week and we're finding where there are barriers last week, there are now no barriers. So we're exploring our new potential by doing this. That's a really useful thing 
just in itself. That stands alone, but that's not part of a serious innovation project. That's part of a learning experience or an exploration experience or maybe a community building experience. One thing you touched on as well is the best way to explain what service design is or service design thinking is, is to do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's and been said for a long time. People yeah, absolutely. You've got, to, you've got to try it. It's like if you describe a sport to someone, let's say you describe ice hockey to somebody, but they've never seen it. Yeah, yeah. It's... They're never going to really understand what it's like, get feel the energy, the speed, the power of it, understand if they like it or not. It's useful for them until they get at least into a stadium or better still on the ice. And then you understand. It's the same thing for entrepreneurship as well. You're not going to read a book and become an entrepreneur or whatever. So, But I relate to that one because last year I was giving a design thinking workshop, you know, just business students. And because of social distancing and all of that, I had someone from the university when I was there on site who was like, no, one person would do it and the others will watch. I'm like, well, we spent three days like that, <laughs> you know, doing what? They're not going to... I said, no, we, we just find another way because they didn't want to do it remotely. But this is exactly what my response was what are they gonna do i'd rather not do it you know because Absolutely. there's no point um, like there's old paintings of early surgery where you have sort of the cadaver you know the dissected body yeah, yeah. down there on the table with two or three surgeons like working on it and up above them are all these rows and rows of students with their notebooks writing yes. down what's happening and they still do that in surgery because you know cadavers are, are valuable resources mm -hmm. which someone has given but there's a point where you have to pick up the knife yourself that's why today with what's happening with the vr and uh, ar and so on now students or even surgeons are learning yeah. alternative ways as well that's great that's really interesting yeah and i just want to ask you because you showed your chicken but i think everyone can imagine your rubber chicken so that's your best mate how did you meet ha <sighs> so i've been using rubber chickens for a long time in my work and my first one was a gift from a good friend who at the time was an american service person stationed in germany and i was actually out in the woods doing uh, some volunteer activities there and this two cars pulled up and the cars emptied and eight American service people got out of the cars, you know, in civilian clothes, but you know, you, you recognize them with the haircuts and stuff like that, especially in that time in the early nineties. And they got out of the car and they handed me a rubber chicken and a roll of duct tape and said, bye. Yeah. <laughs> and left. And it was just sort of a drive by gifting by a friend of mine. And I'd always wanted a high quality rubber chicken. And by the way, there are very different kinds of rubber chicken. You get the ones that dogs chew, the squeaky ones, which are great. I love them and they're quite cheap. And then you get the more advanced ones like this, which you can, can't see, but I'm describing it. It looks much more like a real chicken. It's got kind of, you know, feather marks on it and so on. And it's painted quite realistically. This is a juggling chicken. And these are used by clowns and jugglers. And they're much more difficult to find and they're much more expensive. And it was one of these. So it was a precious thing. It was a real professional level rubber chicken and I thought and this is interesting you know because what does this say about me if I carry this thing around and what does it do to the context it's in when it comes out so you'll find in my practice I'm often working with quite large organizations usually with people in that organization who are a bit you know, relaxed and want to change things or have a drive to push things forward but a lot of the colleagues around them are not like that you know they think things are fine the way they are and many things are fine the way they are <laughs> And that's a wrap. This episode with Adam Lawrence will be continued, so make sure you subscribe to Got Talks to stay tuned. See you next time. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe 
leave a review and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.